Are you from the Spokane area or Northeastern Washington and interested in conservation? Want to hear stories from locals about the work they are doing in land management, conservation, and sustainability? If so, check out the podcast Rocks to Roots from the Spokane Conservation District. I love it when you go out to and there'll be the landowner with their kid. And then every now and then you'll have the privilege of the older landowner with their son and or daughter uh, and then their kid. And they'll bring along the, the grandkids just and the kids are just walking around in the woods, bopping around. It's like, Joey, pay attention here, pal. If everything plays out right, this is your forest. Yeah. And so that's kind of what we're, we're really looking for a legacy awareness with our landowners and not necessarily a family lineage, just however we get there so that, um, yeah, the forest is healthy and rich and uh, we, the pileated woodpeckers persist into the future. And we don't, you know, we don't have another age of extermination. We have an age of restoration and uh, lollipops and love for all the birds and deer and everything. Welcome to the Forest Overstory with WCU Extension Forestry. The Forest Overstory is a podcast that provides insight and education into the field of forest management, helping landowners to become better stewards of their forest. The Forest Overstory is brought to you by the Society of American Foresters and the Inland Empire Chapter. Welcome to the podcast. Morning, Ken. Hey, Ken. Well, for all of our listeners, uh, we're joined today by Ken Bevis. Ken is the stewardship biologist for the Washington Department of Natural Resources. Probably many of you have actually had the privilege of having Ken come to your property. So I know many of you are small forest landowners that are listening to this podcast. Um, but today we actually got a, a cool privilege of really sitting down with Ken and, and talking a little bit, a little bit more about his uh, his history, his schooling, where he came from, you know, what got him into this field, uh, some of his work. We're going to dive into Ken's Ken's past, uh, and then talk a little bit about you know what the future of uh, wildlife biology is for small forest landowners and how you know we can make an impact on the landscape. So, welcome, Ken. How are you doing? Good morning, gentlemen. Nice to be here with my two friends, Patrick and Sean with WSU Forestry Extension, a fabulous program. And yes, indeed, not only have I met a bunch of people, but I've taught lots of webinars and seminars. So hopefully people have uh, been either in a class I've done or watched one of our online things. So thanks for having me. I, I have to say and, and jump in that it's a pretty regular occurrence that anybody that's uh, ever taken one of my classes that I run into later on, uh, they say, how's Ken doing? Uh, has he made any more music? Uh, I just remember Ken's class. It was so amazing. You're you're definitely one of the most notable parts of coach planning and any of our other programs. Oh, man, you just made my little heart go pitter-patter. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we always like to to put you in the front of, the, of my coach planning class because I feel like if we start out with your energy and enthusiasm, and then we follow it up with roads. If I start with road development, then uh, and soils, <laughs> most of them will drop out. <laughs> So I always make sure I get my talks in first so that I don't have to follow Ken. 
<laughs> that's funny. Uh, I, maybe I'll have to try that. I'll have to switch you around and put you at the end and, and get the hook all the way at the bottom. Well, that's yeah. an interesting comment because when you're performing, you usually want to start strong and end strong and you book in your weakest material or the stuff that's like supposed to be interesting. You want to get their attention and then send them home wanting more. And that's putting together a show. And I'll, I'll say that from doing my, my music and performances. It's really interesting. The way you lay out your material has a significant impact on the, uh, what's the word, the residual effect on your audience. So yeah. you guys, you guys putting together your, your class and that series, that's, that's kind of that. So yeah, put me in wherever you need me. Ken, you're, you're in a band, right? You're, you're in a band over where you live. No, I pl- I do perform with some other players, but no, I'm a solo guy. Um, frankly, I've never had the organizational skill to follow through <laughs> with the same players, but I've got uh, some friends that we get together sometimes and we've done some shows and mostly I play solo, but I've written a lot of my own songs, mostly my own songs uh, on a nature theme. So um, I've been called the nature troubadour. That's one moniker and so you're you like a perfect that. mix of Aldo Leopold and Bob Dylan <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. like a rolling rock right? like a big old snag I've got a woodpecker <laughs> song I got a bear song I got a bull trout song I got a salmon song uh, I got a raven song uh, oh the bear the bear video that's pretty cool WSU tell them about that Sean they can find it on the website yeah Four so I, I I'm not sure I'm not sure if it's on our website, forestry.wcu.edu, but I, I know that it is up on our YouTube page. So if you just uh, search on YouTube, WSU Forestry, uh, you should be able to find it. It's it's pretty awesome. It's it's Ken sitting out in the woods. You were on one of our private landowners' properties, right? Yes. We did the field day in Western Washington virtually last year. And uh, I, uh, uh, I was with Brendan uh, White, and we recorded... Uh, I just played the song sitting on a bridge and Dave knew the wonderful landowner who hopefully is listening to this. He had all these videos and photos of bears from his property and he wanted to try making a music video. So he took the recording and then laid it out with the bears. It's called true bear. <laughs> it's really fun. So it's on WSU forestry extensions, YouTube, like Sean said. So check it out. It's really fun. So I'm curious, uh, you just mentioned the field day and how we did it virtually last year. What were your thoughts on that? You know, a surprise to me, honestly, has been with the COVID shutdowns and everything, uh, that our audience using webinars and the virtual thing has actually expanded. And I think that's uh, twofold. One is it's just easier to get at. And the other one is we have rural internet all over the place now. People living out in the boonies uh, myself included, have pretty good internet. And so they don't have to drive the 25 miles to town, you know, to sit through the class with with Patrick or Sean and I, uh, even though they will, and even though they like that better. But our, our uh, client base has expanded. And so when we did the field day last year, we recorded the various presentations in the field with just a small group of us. And then, uh, I think both of you guys didn't both of you work on the production, like literally cutting and cause I know I did with Sean, you did too, yep. Patrick. Right. And so we yep. turned them into these little uh, broadcasts. <laughs> I'm old enough to say it's like being on TV, which we were. 
And um, I, and I'm, I'm going to brag for you guys the uh, the WSU forestry extension team won a national award for their field day. I think that's the field days, I should say, uh, which was just a remarkable uh, effort. And how many people did we have uh, attend? Oh, I'd have to go back and look at the numbers, but I know, I think we had close to uh, a thousand register. Does that sound right, Sean? And then yeah. a, a several hundred uh, logged in. Actually in attended. Okay, because I remember looking. Yeah, at, some yeah. people sign yeah. up just for the recording. <clears throat> oh, okay. Because the number that watched when I did the wildlife when live was like almost 200. And then uh, how many watched it afterward was like six or 800. It was crazy. Yeah, I, I think you're right. We we have it is an awesome, I guess you know, making the best of a bad situation, not being able to be out in person. But we, you're right, we've totally expanded our audience, and I think we've not just expanded, but I think we found a new audience. Because one of the things we've learned is that some of the people that have attended these online events have told us that they wouldn't attend an in-person event. Oh, yeah, there's just two, you know, people have different learning styles, um, and people have busy lives too, so going and traveling for hours to attend a field day it's just maybe not on the table for a lot of folks and what we've learned is that what we need to do going forward is do this hybrid approach where we offer mm -hmm. in-person stuff and online stuff as much as we can to really grab that the entire suite of forest owners. well you know another yeah i know oh. well i was gonna say this year we um because with this coach planning i know ken you taught at it earlier uh, we're offering a hybrid so you can come and view the class at the Spokane Community College and then the college also has zoom compatibility so there's cameras and and one thing I realized was so I got about 16 people who watch it online and one family that comes in in person and the family that comes in they have no internet connection at their house they just they're they're on the waiting list for the Starlink or whatever um, but there's no way they could get the the compatibility to, to watch the, the class online but there are about four landowners who are watching it online who actually live closer to the location that it's being delivered than that family that comes in person. Hmm. Uh, just showing that, you know, even sometimes distance isn't the factor. It's, you know, it's a little bit easier. Maybe you're busy. You can enjoy dinner while you're watching. So there, there, it's really interesting to see this, this kind of new balance of uh, online learning and, and in-person learning and how, uh, you know, people will choose to do each one. And, and we picked up people from far away. I had a guy from yeah. Montana who watched the class and then he sent me an email afterwards asking for advice on uh, lynx habitat in lodgepole pine in Western Montana. It's like, really? And, you know, of course I responded to him. It was pretty interesting. So this is, this yeah. is a brave new world and we'll see how podcasts go. I, I don't know how the word, you know, trickles out outside of Washington uh, so much, but you're right. We've gotten a lot of people from, gotten people from the East Coast and some of these things. I, I did a, a webinar right when the pandemic started um, on log-grown mushroom systems, and we got people from Portugal. I'm like, how did you hear wow. about this? Really? <laughs> Which I think is great. It's awesome. Um, you know, well, it, really expanding our reach and making a name for WCS. We can't think about it too much because it'll make us really nervous realizing how, right. how far <laughs> our reach is. And so, um, yeah, <laughs> I love that. Well, you know, that's the hard thing about this field is in, in natural resources and ecology and whatnot, there's so much diversity in the landscape. So when you, when you give a lecture, 
I mean, oftentimes these lectures, they're very tied down to a specific region. So how do you communicate that information when you have people that are, you know, on the other side of the globe and maybe what you're saying really doesn't apply? Oh, really good point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ken, um, you know, I, I've known you quite a while, but I guess, well, quite a while is subjective. I've known you for about two years now. And, you know, I don't really know much about your past. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, growing up, where, where were you from and, uh, were you, were you a pretty outdoors kid or did you, uh, kind of get into this more in college or? Yeah. Was your... Okay. So let's see. Um, I'm actually originally from Virginia and grew up on the edge of the, the suburbs, but I was one of these kids who was fortunate enough to have a family that went camping on the weekends. I was an avid boy scout, hiking, camping. I had an uncle that took me uh, hunting and fishing, started hunting when I was like 15. And um, I was exposed to nature and I just was drawn to it. And I just remember always like, you know, when I had spare time, instead of being on the ball team, I'd go down in the woods and uh, just had this whole uh, nature affinity. And I was fortunate enough to have access to wild pockets, let's call it. And I say wild, meaning not wilderness, but the woods, you know, like when back East, we'd refer to it as the woods. And, and uh, I was lucky enough to have a family that was like, yeah, sure, I'll go to college. And when I got accepted to Virginia Tech, the Virginia version of WSU, go Cougs, go Hokies. Um, you had to choose a college. And I had a cousin who was studying forestry. And I still remember like, well, I'm not really sure what I want to do. And she goes, well, why don't you check out forestry? You might like that. And I did. It's like, okay, signed up. And I loved it immediately. I didn't have any family with careers in natural resources. You know, my brother ran a truck repair business and other brothers, an engineer, uh, one's a lawyer. My dad worked for the government. Mom was a secretary. And it was like, wow, this is something I just love. It really resonated. And so went all the way through, was on the fire crew in Virginia Tech, kept on doing hiking, hunting, fishing, all that stuff all the way through. Uh, got out of college, couldn't find a job in forestry, was trying to hustle up something in Southern forestry. Uh, got married when I was a young kid. Uh, which is only relevant in that when we split up, when I was 23 years old, I moved to Colorado. It's like, all right, fine, I'm out of here. And I got a job with the Forest Service. So that actually started my natural resources career. And now I'm going to go way back. That was 1982. And so 82, 83, 84, 85, I worked for the Forest Service in the summers and was a ski bum in the winters, Steamboat Springs. <laughs> which was a great arrangement, but I did timber work. I did forest inventory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, this is a real significant moment, but I went back to school to get a teaching degree because even then I was glib and I could tell stories and talk. And I had a boss that said, you might want to be a teacher. And in the course of that, I, oh, I, I had a girlfriend who was moving to this place I'd never heard of called Cleellum, Washington, to study this bird I'd never heard of called the spotted owl. And I went with her and I turned into a field technician on a research project uh, right when the owl was becoming an issue in eastern Washington. I'm, I'm curious, how do you compare 
the eastern portion of the United States, are their forest lands and their wilderness areas, to the western portion of the United States. I mean, these are very different, very different land use histories, very different population growth. Uh, what, what, are, what are some things that stand out to you? Oh, that's a really good question. So I, I, I like to point out that the Pacific Northwest has only had the, the thumbprint of industrial civilization. And I note I'm not going to link that to any particular ethnicity or, or even culture other than, other than um, for not very long. And so if you look back at the history of the state of Washington, you know, the territory was established in 18, what, whatever it was. The, the uh, Stevens Treaty with the tribes was 1855. Seattle was established right about the same time. They started logging out Puget Sound in the 1870s and 80s. Between 1880 and 1910, they basically, we basically cut the entire Puget Sound trough and turned all these forests into little farms and towns and everything. Well, that's not very long ago. We go out on these small properties and we'll go out on some, some properties that were logged the first time and either were farmland for, a, for like one phase, one, that, that whole small subsistence farm phase in Western Washington, which there's tons of remnants of. And uh, you guys are both nodding there because you, we go out to properties and there's the old barn falling down with all the blackberries growing out of it. And that wasn't very long ago. And so we had the first round of timber harvest, which sometimes grew back and was cut again. After it was cut the second time, it was replanted. And now we're looking at a plantation third time through. If you go back east, uh, that's, that all happened in 1650 or 1610. It's like George Washington was a surveyor laying out land grants in virgin beech and oak and chestnut forest all across the foothills of, of Virginia, just for, from where I'm from. But that was in, you know, really, really early. I want to say, no, even before George Washington, a lot of it was already logged out. And so back there, the, hmm. the footprint of civilization is so deep that you actually can't see the original landscape. And here you can still see the uh, pre-civilization, if you want to call it that landscape. And consequently, well, no, excuse me, not consequently, but a side note to that, that I always point out in my classes is that most of the original fauna is still here. You know, we're sitting here attempting to restore salmon to the rivers, which were once upon a time super abundant. But the very fact is they still exist. They still exist. So we, we, we have a chance to perpetuate uh, and learn to live with the native, uh, uh, I, I was going to say native ecology because that's broader than just the flora and fauna, but that's what we have a chance to do here. And that's part of what's so exciting about our work in working with small landowners. And I'm sure we're going to get back to that. So it's a very different setting. And I, I just love that about the Pacific Northwest in particular, um, uh, because that's our, that's our setting. I, I'm really glad that you brought that up because that's a, that's a thought that's occurred to me, you know, being from back East myself, I, you know, it's, it's almost like there was a delayed effect as people moved westward and then it, we kind of are, I think our, our national conscious started to catch up with itself. 
uh, as we moved westward into more sustainable resource management mindset. Whereas, you know, that was that kind of window is closed back east. You know, we'd already clear cut, uh, you know, whole states basically just just to, to get the timber and build big cities. Um, and then as we moved westward, you know, we were starting to think more about some of these things. And, I, and what I wonder for you, you know, starting in Virginia and then moving to Colorado and then coming over here, you know, culturally, what do you see as the differences, especially when it comes to uh, wildlife and how wildlife interacts with human development? Um, you know, what what are the differences in values, even things like hunting? You know, I, from Michigan, everybody's got deer camps. Everybody loves hunting. Uh, it's a little bit different here. Uh, not, not necessarily in a bad way, but different for sure. Yeah, I, I wonder if culturally, nationally, things have started to even out somewhat and there'll still be... Uh, how do I say, like hunting is a whole ball of wax unto itself in regard to our relationship to wildlife and is culturally rooted in families and communities. So like you say, in Virginia, uh, in Michigan and Virginia, like my uncle's hunting cabin was in a rural area that everybody went hunting, you know, oh yeah, sure. But you go to Seattle, nobody hunts. So I, I like to ask the question at coach planning, and this is sort of a, uh, what's the word, a check-in with where I am. How many people are hunters in the class? So, like, I asked that question in uh, Preston over by North Bend, which would be King County small forest landowners, many of whom are urban refugees who bought their five or mm. ten acres to build a house in the woods. And I still remember there was a class of 50 people, and there were no hunters, zero. And I just yeah. asked the yeah, same well. question in Sean's class in Colville. And out of what, 20 people in the class about Sean, was it? Something like that. There was like seven hunters. And that was one of the highest proportions I had seen. But Northeast Washington, much more. But to to answer the question more directly, I think people mostly perceive wildlife as an amenity. It's something you watch at your bird feeder or it's something that you you got this thrill from seeing you know, whatever it is, fill in the blank, the barred owl, the deer, if you're lucky, a cougar, that sort of thing. So I'm not totally convinced that everybody has solidly linked their own influence on the habitat with the existence of these creatures, because habitat's the key to wildlife. Department of Fish and Wildlife used to have this bumper sticker, and that's what it said, and it's true. And so... Um, you know, a, a, a really important concept is to realize that wildlife is an expression of habitat. Uh, if you don't have the habitat, you won't have the creatures. And a disconnect that people make is, I, I think, and I, and I can't really explain this very purely, but I'm going to attempt a nudge at it. But that is we have pets. So we relate to our dog and our cat or our parakeet or our snake or whatever. And we assume that our relationship to wild animals is the same and that we're somehow responsible for the individuals like as if they were pets. And they're not. Wild animals are free ranging, getting by. You know, they're not nice to each other. Oh, my God. You know, they kill and eat, eat each other. And we there's a weird crossover there where, where people, once they take responsibility for say the deer in their yard, then it would be 
a horror to them for that deer to be shot, hit by a car, killed by a cougar sort of thing. And so I can't quite tease that out. But the strength of that empathy to the animal and to try to link that to responsibility for maintaining natural habitats is something that I really attempt to weave into presentations. It's because that's why I emphasize habitat. So I'll emphasize habitat and kind of the wonder of the animals. So you guys have probably noticed I use lots of photos in my presentations and I, I've taken a lot of them and I collect them from other people and I always get permission to use them by the way. Um, and, and, um, yeah, and it's visual. It's like, oh, look, there's a picture of a bear. Oh, look, there's a pileated woodpecker. And this is a pileated woodpecker. And I like to do this. I will, I will say to people, how many of you have seen a pileated woodpecker? And they raise their hand and go, I have. Everybody has. And they feel smart. They feel like uh, like ownership engaged with that animal. And so it's a really interesting dynamic about um, responsibility for the animal and therefore the habitat or vice versa to, to put that in the head so that it's both ways. And our small landowners, I just love this about small landowners is we can do whatever we want. Pretty much they pretty much a small landowner can do anything. They can cut the trees down. They can plant trees. They can make snags. They can leave logs on the ground, you know, all that stuff. And if they know the value of that and they implement it and they're observant, they will always reap the benefits in terms of seeing more wildlife. It's so interesting because it does work. You, you know, Ken, I think it's funny. Um, you started out your career as a forester and then flipped later on into wildlife. When I started out my career, I started out as a wildlife conservation program and then flipped into forestry. And the reason that I did that was exactly like what you said. I realized somewhere along the way that when you're managing wildlife, you're not, you're rarely actually moving or studying the wildlife itself. More often than not, you're actually just managing the habitat that that wildlife persists on. Uh, and so that was when I realized, oh, wow, when you're managing forests, this is like the underlying, you know, the base of what you actually want to do. And you probably have a bigger impact on, on wildlife communities as a forester than you do as a wildlife ecologist. Uh, so that was, you know, I, I kind of made that switch over. It's cool to see that the opposite came true for you. And, you know, now here we are, uh, educating, educating the public. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. I, I just, I just had one comment I've made before and I got verification from a friend who is a, is a district biologist for fish wildlife. And I've made the comment that we really don't manage actively very many populations of anything, you know, so like the deer and hunting is classic, the deer season. How many deer did you guys shoot in the game management unit, whatever last year? Oh, we had, you know, 602 reported and this many were bucks and this many were does. Okay. How many deer are there? Oh, uh, well, our aerial survey said there was 5,000 plus or minus a thousand. Okay, fine. How many cougars are there? Well, we killed 27 in game management unit, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Well, I know, but how many other, well, we don't know but we killed 27 and th it'll be like, but we still seem to have a population. Oh, how many songbirds are there? Uh, well, we estimate, and it's, and so um, most populations, we don't have accurate estimates of numbers, but we can monitor trends in habitat. And if you know what the habitat association is, 
you can sort of project that out. And it's really, I mean, frankly, it's really, it's really hard to get uh, solid numbers on wildlife populations, even if you go out and do significant uh, high intensity monitoring, even then most wildlife is, is uh, able to survive by way of avoiding us. And so there, it's hard to count. It's really hard to get good numbers on populations and it's expensive and, you know, and all that, I'm meaning it's expensive because you have to pay people to spend their time to do the hard work that it takes to get the count of whatever it is. And so that's, that's actually part of the interest of the, the wildlife end is if you get to, to do some of that work, you have to go outside, and, you know, set out traps, walk transects, put up cameras, whatever. So. Yeah, I think that's why, you, you know, the message that comes across in your classes and webinars that you teach for us about habitat is so important because one of the first things that I think that we have to, you know, for a small forest owner that's especially new, like just bought their property or something, just, just for the first time considering getting more involved in forest management, wildlife management, whatever, um, you really, really have to get the point across that they're not managing that two or three deer in their property. They're not managing these four or five particular trees. You're managing an ecosystem. Um, when we talk about forest health, one of the biggest misconceptions is that, you know, any, that any dying tree is, is bad. But we know that that's not true. It's actually really good. And I'm sure you'll at some point talk about dead wood uh, in, this, in this podcast, as I know you like to. Um, but it's the same thing with wildlife biology, you know, and, and thinking about wildlife, you're managing an ecosystem, you're managing a habitat, you're building it so that they will come. And it's really important to, to take that wider mindset, not miss the forest for the trees, uh, you know, or the deer for the herd kind of thing. So it's, it's really, uh, yeah, I, I really, I, I think your message to, to forest owners is really important um, and articulated well. Nice. Yeah, okay. So I'll break the forest into four components, speaking to the landowner, because I want people to, to think about the ground level, meaning the stuff on the ground and under the ground, the, the, the shrub layer, the brush, meaning the low, usually broadleaf stuff. The, the crown, excuse me, the canopy of the trees, meaning the, the over the branches above you and the stems themselves. So the stems themselves are almost a different habitat feature than the crowns. And obviously some species will overlap, but let's say there's little birds that will, or golden crown kinglet, great example, would uh, glean insects in the canopy and go tree to tree to tree to tree to tree to tree, might go on the trunk a little bit, or a but a woodpecker will uh, forage in a standing piece of dead wood uh, and a salamander is going to live in a down log. So these are three different uh, niches with different species using each one. And when the landowner manages their property, if they're cogent to that, is that the right word? Can I use that cogent? If they're aware of the different uh, roles of these components then they can include them in their management. And a lot of times, you know, you, you get somebody, a new landowner might say something like, well, I thought I needed to clean the woods up. You've heard mm -hmm. that one. And it's like, what does that mean? Well, I want to get all that dead wood out of there in that brush. And it's like, uh, well, uh, why are you interested in habitat? So we always circle back to uh, what's your objective 
And then sometimes we'll run into landowners who really aren't very clear on their objectives. And we, and this is all of us, have this moment where it's like, okay, I get to shape those objectives. And, you know, and if, if the objective is forest health, which is kind of a buzzword, frankly, uh, what does that mean? And so, I, Patrick, thank you for that, that elaboration, because in essence, we're inserting habitat quality into what it means to have a healthy forest. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's interesting for when you're, when you're managing these populations, especially for landowners, a lot of them come in and especially the, the newbies, you know, they buy their ranchettes, their five acres, uh, and they don't, you know, when you don't really have a background, you think, okay, well, uh, wildlife equals forests forests equals green trees, green trees equals wildlife. And there's kind of this, it's very simple, but you know, wildlife are very complex. As you said, there's these, you know, and, and you simplified it into four broad categories and that's <laughs> still very, very simple as uh, you know, these, these habitat types can vary across the landscape, but I, I always think about it into two forms. There is, I generally want wildlife on my place. So then I take more of this kind of passive, broad, diverse approach based on what I have on my landscape. And the other is I have a very specific wildlife species that I would like to manage for. And then when you do that, if there's something, you know, like I'm managing for deer or I'm managing for elk or I'm managing for some uh, late stage closed canopy bird, you know, that, you know, it takes us on these different paths of how we can kind of set up our our forests or towards this different trajectory based on what your goals are. You know, and I've never, the only time I've ever had somebody and I've been doing this job eight and a half years now, and I have met over 500 landowners. It's actually, it's in the hundreds and I've never met anyone with a specific species objective other than a handful of hunters who wanted to encourage deer and their management for the deer was usually huntability. It wasn't even like trying to build populations because they lived in a place where they had populations. Sean, like that guy we met up there by rice mm -hmm. um, yeah. and they had deer and he wanted to configure his overstock forest in such a way to encourage hunting. And, but that's the only one I've never had somebody say, I really want pileated woodpeckers, but to, to your point, exactly. So if you have, the specific niche needs of a species known, not all these pileated woodpeckers as an example, they need big dead wood. If you wanted to manage your woodlot to keep pileated woodpeckers on the site, you want to keep and encourage big dead wood. And you could do that. You could certainly do that. Small dead wood, not as important. Um, so, or deer, you want openings with shrubs or uh, gophers. You'd want the right kind of soil and you'd want to get rid of the trees. Like if you were going to manage for Mazama pocket gophers, you would want a prairie, not a forest. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's a good you know, point. Yeah. You, you said something in my coach planning class a couple of weeks ago that surprised me. And it was that pileated woodpeckers use a different snag every year. And yeah. when I did that and I did the math on that, I mean, that's a lot of snags. Or they, Well, they'll make a, they'll either clean out an existing cavity or make a new cavity often in the same snag. Because, oh, okay. Because I must have misunderstood Yeah, that. you'll get it. You'll get a tree that'll have a whole series of cavities in them. I don't know if you remember that. That one picture of mm -hmm. a larch. Larches are probably the best 
in regard to uh, rot characteristics for getting a cavity into them. So a cavity snag being one that the woodpeckers were able to to literally bore that that you know oval hole up in the tree for their nesting cavity, and um, they get hard on the outside and soft in the middle, a dead larch. So sometimes there'll be a tree, and Doug Furs will do this too. Well, pines will too. Ponderosa pine um, that they can excavate a cavity where the the rot trajectory is just right, and then it basically decays. I think going downward just because of where the moisture is coming in from the top of the broken off tree and they'll make another one just below that one. And then sometimes the bottom rots out of that one. Then they just keep going down the tree and every now and then there'll be a tree that'll have a whole series of these cavities. And those are really, really valuable. So yeah, see Patrick, you were right. I did wander into snags. Well, you know, Sean, Sean, a a little piece of my background that this segues nicely to is my, I did a master's uh, at Central Washington University about uh, snags and woodpeckers. It's about primary cavity excavators in three forest types in uh, the area around Cleellum. And the three forest types Mm -hmm. were, two were generated by harvest, uh, but all the, the forest type was the same, grand fir, dug fir, mixed conifer uh, in almost a seed tree, a shelter wood, and unmanaged forest. And we did transects and counted cavity excavating birds and snags and then did graphs and charts and everything and found out that the more standing dead trees you have, the more primary cavity excavators you have, if you lump them all together, which was not a surprise. Were there specific species or specific primary excavators that you saw associated with each of those different management styles? Um, the uh, open stands had flickers. The dense stands had, uh, and pileateds were so rare, but we did get them a couple of times, but lots of red-breasted nuthatches. So little nuthatches will make cavities. And they were, those two species in particular were the clearest that showed up, I mean, cause it was a master's and I had seven plots, but the plots were really big. And so there was a, a lot of, uh, what's the word? Not, there, we didn't have a really deep population data set. We got a really good data set on snags being used for cavities because you can see them. You know, it's sort of like doing forest inventory. You can run a, a plot and count everything. Um, so there was a set of, species associated with the more open habitat and the closed habitats. And then the half logged habitat was really interesting because it had both, which was something that's led Mm. me to, led me to think about um, species diversity in managed stands where if you can maintain adequate legacy structures, which is a good mimic for disturbance, for true natural disturbance, even fires, you're going to have snags and logs and living trees and stuff kind of opened up and scattered around. And you can maintain a lot of these forest-related species all the way through succession because succession's not as clean as we see it in our diagrams. Succession's really pretty messy unless you get uh, human-induced land change. You know, usually there's all sorts of legacy stuff. I'm glad that you said that because something that I have been thinking about a lot lately, uh, this has been like a, almost a, a personal or professional transformation that I think a, a lot of foresters and a lot of forest owners deal with 
is um, shaking the idea that you have to have trees on every square inch of ground. Um, you have said time and time again that uh, early seral habitat or young forest habitat is really important. Um, there's a professor at, at WSU, Mark Swanson, who gives a really good talk on the importance of early seral habitat and how underrepresented it is. We think a lot about how old growth habitat is underrepresented, but we forget that early seral habitat, basically forest without a canopy, um, is underrepresented. And, and it's kind of a tough sell, I think, to get forest owners to manage maybe even long-term areas without a forest canopy with lots of dense shrub growth. Uh, but that diversity that you're talking about, not just in a single area, uh, having lots of different kinds of plants, but what we call horizontal diversity of being able to walk through a forest and seeing all different kinds of structure areas with less forest or less overstory or no overstory or dense overstory. That's also critical in thinking on a wider scale. I mean, what would you say to a landowner uh, to try to convince them to manage, you know, a gap? Yeah, you know, that I, I haven't really figured out how to do that because our instinct is to plant trees. Yes, you people will be like, well, you got to get some right. trees in here. And um, I, I wonder if that's a reflection of our uh, overall forestry bias of growing trees, you know, because I have said that forestry is really good at growing trees. That's what we do. And so consequently, I don't have to, in my litany about habitat diversity, I don't have to encourage people to grow canopy. So back to those four elements, um, because we're going to do that. We're going to thin, we're going to plant, we're going to get the right species in the right place. I do have to encourage them to retain dead wood because we're pushing against this notion of cleaning up the stand and we're pushing against this notion of the healthy forest that, uh, seeing dead trees means your forest isn't healthy, which isn't necessarily the case. I mean, a root rot pocket might be a different story, but just that. And so how do you encourage somebody to maintain an opening while you just point out the value of it? And um, that's one reason that I always put that slide in there that says, remember, natural forests are heterogeneous. They're, what's that one? The OSU people like to use, happy, happy, gappy, clumpy. Patchy, gappy, clumpy. <laughs> pa pa yeah. And so I haven't heard I, I put this one in there too. That's the Quinault old growth forest. Maybe you remember this picture that has the gigantic trees. And that forest is the trees are not only 100 feet apart, but there's big canopy openings and there's these shrub areas. And it's a really diverse, you know, rich natural forest. So, how to encourage that would be by pointing out the value of it, you know, and, and unfortunately, most people are not, oh, how do I say, deeply aware of species variety. I mean, I, like I always ask, not only are there hunters, but I'll ask how many birders are there in the group? And birders are basically are, are a, a hobby observationist, if you want to call it that, because the whole point of birding is to say, oh, there's a lazuli bunting, you know, check, I got one. And they're looking and they could tell you the difference between a canopy bird and a brush bird, for example, or a ground dwelling one. But a lot of people don't know that. They'll say, oh, I got, yeah, I've got songbirds. I've got little birds out there. So if you were trying to make the case that habitat diversity will give you species diversity, you actually have to teach both of those points at the same time and get a buy-in on it. I kind of want to draw a distinction here too, because um, 
so we say the word early Cyril or this mm. opening without trees. And then we say, okay, well, clear cutting, you know, is a tool that we can use to go in and create this habitat. But we have to be careful because clear cutting in a timber sense has a very specific management goal. Um, it's used in areas where we, c- we have a lot of moisture so we can grow trees very quickly. Oftentimes when you see a clear cut in a production setting, you see a lot of slash on the ground. And that, that's because uh, cost of removing that slash is, is high. And also that slash provides really good habitat for growing seedlings again. Um, or right. you know, place them in the ground. It gives little niche shading niche for them to survive. Uh, the other thing that a lot of production do, uh, production forestry does in a clear cut is they manage the brush that comes in afterwards. Right. And I think that right there is the really fine distinction. And like a really good ecological clear cut is something that would go in, and we can leave some biomass on the ground. I mean, that's you know that's going to be important, um, but we don't really want to go in and try to limit the growth of shrubs. We want to promote the growth of shrubs and, and specifically promote the growth of native shrubs because a lot of these clear cuts become pockets of where weeds will come in and get, you know, uh, get their, get their roots into the ground, really the roots into the landscape and more of a, a theoretical concept there. Um, <laughs> but if you can go in and open up these gaps and then manage for the weeds and start planting you know, if you're on the west side planting your your maple, uh, you know, your sword ferns will come in, uh, your um, devil's club will come in. I'm trying to think of all the species that I was seeing that were popping up on the west side when I was doing my research over here. But over, you know, on the east side, things like, um, oh, we see a ton of ocean spray come up in these gaps or uh, mallow nine bark or elderberry or i mean there's so many in grasses just the litany of grass species that appear in these openings you have to actively maintain those in those openings for this to be a benefit for those critters yeah i think that's really important to to distinguish is that it's not necessarily an easy task you can't just cut it and and then walk away right cut a little half acre gap you're gonna have a half acre of blackberry if you're in western washington um for sure what and and if you or scotch broom. Yeah, if you make a big enough gap, you definitely yeah, yeah, have, get some scotch broom. Patrick has the intractable, uh, those woody weeds that just can take over and create a brush patch. Well, and and the, the dynamic of a harvest and then shrubs and then regrowing trees, yeah, that's a really interesting thing for landowners because that, that early, okay, now I'm going to use the term again, but that early cereal stage of the saplings with the well-developed shrubs in between the saplings, that's one of the best habitat times in the whole sequence of trees. And the least valuable habitat is a closed canopy, uh, younger aged, pure conifer stand. I'm, I'm kind of coming around to where, uh, okay, a solid, healthy green conifer, any of them, is really not a very good habitat feature because it's defending itself with pitch and everything else. I mean, how many things eat pine cones? Nothing eats a pine cone. They eat the seeds. Oh, okay. The squirrel eats the seed buried way in the middle of the pine cone at a certain time in its life. How many things actually eat conifer needles? Not very many. Not very many at all, in fact. They might eat the insects that get on them. But so a, a conifer tree 
has more habitat value after it dies because stuff can get into the wood. Basically, the wood is suddenly this available substrate for fungus and insects. And then like a woodpecker is really an apex predator on the sequence of insects that are breaking down wood back into soil and everything. So, I mean, that whole food chain right there is one of the reasons, or is, uh, I don't know, at least in terms of uh, zoology, why dead trees are so interesting. But a solid green conifer, other than the seeds and the surface area, doesn't really offer very much as compared to, say, an elderberry bush, where something can eat the shrubs, eats the berries. Uh, they can't they can't nest in it if, or if they're a cavity nester. Um, so anyway, just everything has a certain role in terms of habitat, food, water, cover. Can you eat it? Can you hide in it? Uh, can you, well, you can't drink it, but you can't, yeah. Can you eat it or hide in it? There you go. Well, and I, I think one of the species that I always love to point to, which is the greatest conundrum between uh, wildlife management and, you know, silviculture are the some of the thorny berry species? Um, if if you look at, I I can't remember the number. There was some statistic, some paper had done an assessment of how met, how much was spent in terms of dollars in trying to keep these you know blackberry bushes, whether or not it was the invasive blackberry or not, out of these stands because the thorns would choke out and kill the the seedlings that they were planting in the ground but at the same time these blackberries become i mean they are huge resource habitat or re, uh, food resources for deer especially in in the west side blacktail deer and bears yep. uh, as they move through these cuts um so how do you know it's this is like a this really clear point of like you know, uh, across a, a fork in the road of, well, one way you go is managing for wildlife. The other is we're managing for timber production. So part of our task is to get people to do both because I, I, I mean, I believe in growing trees and forestry and the silviculture are laudable goals. And I think you can have a semblance of all of it, particularly in those early and mid cereal stages while you allow uh, many of these valuable shrub plants to persist while your trees grow up in close canopy. And then if you thin periodically as you go, you can actually maintain the understory and keep a few dead trees around while you grow your overstory. It's like a really well-managed, uh, what's the word, incrementally treated stand. You can do that. And, and, and people... Um, who witness industrial forestry that's all production oriented, you know, and so, I mean, you think about the, the clear cut model in Western Washington, where you, you know, you have 35 year old stand, you cut it. Oh, and they're whole tree yarding an awful lot now. And so the slash isn't even left out on the site. It's in that giant pile that's often burned. So your biomass goes there, they spray it with often with a helicopter, they plant it, and then they spray it again, what, two years in, Patrick? Is it two or three years in to beat the brush back? Then you essentially beat the brush, the shrub layer, all the way down to where the trees come up and the trees win. They outrace it in the first eight years. And that's a, a very conscious uh, vegetative management strategy in order to get those uh, the, con the next crop up. And it works. 
you know, frankly, it works for growing yeah, wood fire. It, do, it does work. And sometimes it's your really, yeah, your only option to get trees planted and, and growing. And I think the, yeah, the, and, you know, Sean, you said it kind of best. I mean, there's just two very different goals. Um, there you're trying to get a forest overstory established and you're doing everything, uh, using everything in your power to do that and um, beat the blackberries, right? You got to beat the blackberries, got to beat the scotch broom. Um you know, right. when, but we think about historically how long it might have taken for a forest to get established after a big natural disturbance like fire. Um, that early seral period, that period where those trees are trying to create an overstory would take decades. It would take, you know, so you'd get that habitat feature for much longer. Um, but it is one of these things that it, as a, a small forest owner in particular, because we know many of our small forest owners, they don't they're not as uh, incentivized for in terms of timber. They're not really thinking that I'm going to grow the best timber in the world. That's not really a major objective. Sometimes uh, people still harvest anyway, but it's not the primary objective. And we know that. So they can mix in all these other forms of management. They could cut a little half acre gap, plant in some elderberry and all this other stuff and maintain it like that and, and kind of achieve, like you said, all of those, those things all in the same space. Um, some yeah. people do. We, we run into that sometimes. Some, I love it when you go visit the longtime tree farmer who's gotten the gospel of habitat diversity and they show you where they did. You know, we put a pond in right here and we planted those elderberries and we thin that stand over there. Oh, let me show you my pileated woodpecker snag. It's like, I want to hug these people. <laughs> it's like, show me more, <laughs> right. show me more. And they are out there. And, you know, we're, we're, we're I mean, at least I'm trying to remind people that their toolbox for maintaining that diversity is wide. And it's the, it's the same tools in forestry. I still remember this line from Virginia Tech was the best tools for wildlife management were bulldozers, chainsaws, <laughs> and dynamite. Oh, and guns too, for getting your objective. So um, it, a lot of times people who do have timber that they want to harvest, it either came from the management actions of the previous owner's or if they're really lucky and it's the family, it'll be like Elmer. Mm -hmm. Remember Elmer, Patrick? That patch of woods yeah. out behind his place. And he had these beautiful big Douglas fir trees. And he basically said that his wife's father, right? It was like his wife's father. I think that's right. Or was it her grandfather? But he had saved that stand like as a savings account in case he needed it when he got old. Right. And he never needed it. He basically, he basically died before he had to harvest those trees. And here's Elmer looking at these incredible trees. So anyway, so we have, a, know, I, we have a lot of variability in our landowners. I, I think big trees are cool with the, some of the new work that's being done on taking them down and putting them into rivers. Have you, have you seen this, these types of projects happening, Ken? Oh, good. Nice <laughs> segue there. Um, yeah. The, the, the ecology of our river systems Historically, okay, so this is reflecting back on that native fauna in the Northwest that civilization arrived upon. And so this was true in other systems too, but the natural ecology of river systems had lots of like logs and complexity, and much of it was driven by uh, things that fell into the river, trees. And they'd wash into a log jam or something, and that would create the pool and create the eddy. And over time, it's almost the same instinct that we have on the forest of let's clean it up. 
we cleaned up our rivers. We pulled the logs out. And, you know, frankly, many times it was because we wanted to take a boat down the river or log log drives because many, many of our rivers in the Northwest were used for log drives like the Yakima is a great example. They logged out the Tianaway, built splash dams, and then would blast the splash dam and the, the pulse of logs goes downstream. And when you do that, you had to get the wood out of the way. So we use big hydraulic winches and all that. So essentially, uh, part of our, um, what's the word, uh, growing and still growing awareness of living within the natural system and attempting to restore process uh, is wood in streams. And so all, I know many, many of us have seen in the salmon recovery efforts and other river restoration, literally doing engineered log jams where they'll bring pieces of wood in. And um, uh, I know this is a nice place to insert a, 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 a pause in my wildlife career was I spent four and a half years working in salmon recovery up here in the upper Columbia. That's how I, how I got into North central Washington. And I was uh, part of project review for all these river projects, whole bunch of them um, still on the board of a fisheries enhancement group. And we will deliberately uh, engineer projects to create habitat complexity in such a manner that it doesn't create significant additional hazard for people. So that's one reason when you see those log jam things, they're cabled together. They're, they're like literally constructed, uh, well, they're constructed log jams that'll be dug into the bank and everything, but it works, meaning it'll divert the river over, it'll create the pool and that complexity that came out of, uh, the wood in the rivers is actually a, a huge driver for the productivity of the salmon and all of the other ecosystem functions. So we're doing that now. So to kind of yeah answer your question there, there, there are specialty products coming out of timber sales where they, instead of cutting the tree off at the base, they push it over, they get the root wad, they'll actually pick it up and shake the dirt off of it. And every now and then you'll see a truck going down the road with the log with a root wad on it. And you look at that, it's like, what in the world is that for? Well, that's river wood. It's going in and they use the root wad uh, at the water end because it creates more surface area for deflecting water and creating the the eddy and everything that they're looking for with that. Yeah. Can you speak a little more to that and, and how that habitat fits in with, you know, fish biology and, and what exactly is happening there to, to create habitat for fish? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so for everybody who's a fisherman, fisher person, I should say, in the audience, um, and if you go out on a river and you want to try to catch a fish, you don't go look in the shallow riffle. There's no place for a fish to hide. So a revelation I had in doing fish work for a, those couple of years was the, the very same principles that apply in the upland food water cover apply under the water except those animals have this remarkable three-dimensional existence, meaning they can go up and down, kind of like birds. But they're looking for a place to hide to get away from predators. So who are the predators on a larger fish? An otter, a kingfisher, an osprey. Um, you know, uh, in the saltwater, it's an orca, a shark, something like that. And so your, your, your fish, that seems to be our focus, and I'm holding my hands out in like a 12 to 36 inch fish. Cause we always think of when you say fish, we think of trout or salmon or bass or walleye. And we're, we're really looking at upper parts of the food chain indicator species for the health of the rest of it. 
And so the health of the rest of it would be the aquatic insects, the algae, the phytoplankton, all those things that are foundational to the food pyramid. I'm drawing a pyramid, although people can't see my hands here, uh, leading up to that. Well, in order for those animals to exist, they need a place to hide. They need something to eat. And a simplified river which is what we've tended, we civilization once again has tended to do to our water courses, not all of them, upper headwaters, well, it depends. Um, we've tended to simplify by way of diking and removing vegetation, pulling the logs out over the years. And a, a case in point in spades, Patrick is right in your backyard, the Chehalis. The Chehalis has been levied simplified to where it's essentially sheet flow down in a ditch, much of it, not all of it, where it used to be much shallower with all these little side channels and beavers and cedar. And we turned it into farmland. The Skagit's another really good example where the water, where the river system was simplified. And so now there's active projects to essentially uh, reestablish complexity in locations that are socially acceptable. So that's a, that's a really important rubric for this era of restoration. So if you look at history of our relationship to fish and wildlife, um, there was the era of extermination, which was like 1870 to 1910, something like that, where we killed all the buffalo. The, the state of California, what's on their flag? A grizzly bear. Are there any California grizzlies now? No, they killed them a long time ago, way before that. But anyway, um, we actively were, uh, you know, uh, removing things from the landscape in a rapid manner with buffalo being the, the classic. And then things changed. Then things kind of turned around and we started into the era of conservation. Teddy Roosevelt, Gifford Pinchot and all these things who are our philosophical heirs while we're trying to not just maintain the ecosystem, but now we're actually trying to restore it to some sustainable uh, level that we can live with long-term. And I think that's what's really exciting about our profession right now, that we're, we're attempting to meld all of this knowledge together. And then, you know, our social license uh, we bonk into, which is really frustrating for a lot of wildlife managers. Um, you know, reestablishing wolves or grizzly bears, classic. I mean, Sean, listen to the conversations about wolves in Northeast Washington. Uh, it's pretty darn fascinating stuff. So I went far afield there, but rivers, rivers and the uplands have the same essential needs of uh, recognizing the need for habitat complexity, maintaining it where you can, and reestablishing it where you can. So, Ken, I know two two big words that I always hear when I talk when people talk about steam or stream degradation is sedimentation and stream temperature. Can yeah. you discuss both of those? <laughs> why there are issues there, and then what what are the roles that you know or maybe why are those having an impact on um our our fish streams so our cold water fish trout and salmon that are our focus uh need uh in particular clean gravel meaning without a lot of sediment in it in order to successfully spawn because their life history basically is they bury their eggs in uh gravels of different sizes. The bigger the fish, the bigger the gravel. So like a Chinook, 
a big Chinook can actually move fairly good size uh, cobble or gra gravel cobbles the next size up in order to deposit its eggs in the in the uh, the gravel bed. They're red, R-E-D-D. Well, if you get too much sediment, they basically suffocate. And the sediment often comes from human activity in the form of road cuts, um, land clearing, uh, ditching, et cetera. And, you know, or, or even, unfortunately, fire events. Fire events can create this pulse of fine sediment, which we're going to have happen in a lot of eastern Washington this year, uh, depending on how the water comes off. So to take active steps to reduce fine sediment is one of the purposes of stream buffers. So the very best way you can reduce fine sediment is to have root mass and leaves and vegetation uh, not just adjacent to the stream, that helps, but in places where things flow into the stream. And so part of the whole idea on the landscape is to create places to trap that fine sediment, which, by the way, has significant ecological function in different places. Sometimes big landslides will make these really cool outwashes and then the fines go in there and they flush through. So uh, vegetative cover, particularly roots and just overhanging vegetation, are the one tool that we apply as much as we can, hence forest practices rules with buffers. So the forest practices rules in the state of Washington are essentially a mandated set of best management practices with a scientific basis with the expressed intent of reducing fine sediment and improving temperature in streams by way of shade. And so, you know, solar inputs on water for, for fishermen, uh, and I haven't really dabbled with this very much, but a lot of trout fishermen will carry thermometers with them and they will, the really hardcore stream guys will be checking the temperature of the stream and there's a optimal range for feeding. And there's even a, a lethal range. If it gets above like 64 degrees in the water, something like that, you really shouldn't play a fish because you might actually kill it. You could stress a trout so much above that temperature, whereas say a bass, it wouldn't bother it at all, or a catfish even more so. Um, and so water temperature is strongly influenced by uh, solar input. And so that's why we, we want shade. So shade, so shade vegetative mass are, uh, what's the word, reducing or moderating, I should say, sediment and temperature, and that's those two things are really the the goal of stream buffers. Yeah, I think that's what you were kind of poking at there, right? Yep. Yeah, and our forest practices rules have been pretty successful. I, I used to work in forest practices, not for DNR, but I reviewed forestry uh, harvest for ten years in Yakima. This was part of my my previous career, I'd go out on people's proposed projects and we'd see if they were meeting the standards under forest practices rules. And, and there are trees that people aren't able to harvest because they're in those buffers. And we've got some programs for small landowners, the forest riparian easement program and others to acknowledge that there's lost economic value there. Uh, and it's, it's kind of a, I may get in trouble for this, but it's something of a blunt instrument because there are cases where you might be able to do something creative in a riparian zone and still meet those objectives of shading and, and uh, sediment reduction, you know, it's, but, but the way that it's implemented, it's like, no, in this type of stream, in this setting, the, the buffer is, you know, 74 feet 
or whatever it is. There, there's, and it varies a lot. That's what the forest practices people do. And so um, interestingly, though, between that and the extensive effort to improve passage, which may I say something about fish passage? So the streams are like the cap, the little streams are the capillaries and the arteries of the ecosystem. That's the, you know, even look at the dendritic pattern on a map and it looks for all the world like a map of the nervous system or the blood vessels in a person. I think that's so interesting that that, 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 uh, that pattern is the same. And uh, we collectively, civilization again, you know, culverts, bridges, dikes, et cetera, et cetera, for years and years and years by way of building our infrastructure uh, for our own interest, we would block passage for uh, aquatic organisms, not just fish. And the worst ones were culverts because we did a lot of culverts across the landscape where they were put in with, um, oh, what's the word? Maximum efficiency at the time. And culverts, uh, if they're inadequately sized, they always fail. They always fill in at the top, down cut at the bottom. And how many have you seen where the, the pipe was perched two feet above? There's a bunch of big rocks right at the bottom of the outfall. And at the top, it's half clogged up with fine sediment. It's like, oh, that's an undersized pipe. And so we collectively in our restoration work and uh, forest and fish was an agreement with forest landowners, including timber companies in particular, to address uh, streams, forest and fish, and passage in particular. And so over the years, there's been through the road maintenance and abandonment plans, this systematic approach to uh, fixing barriers, starting usually, not always, but at the bottom of the stream and working your way up. And it's been very successful. It's pretty darn cool. And now, uh, oh God, through legalities and such, DOT's even in on the game and doing, you know, some significant fish projects all across the state. And we're, we're, we're attempting to remedy the clogs in the arteries at the same time that the oceans are going crazy and over harvest. And, you know, so salmon is a whole complicated uh, circumstance, but on the landscape portion, we're doing some really good work. We're putting logs in the stream. We're fixing passage barriers. We're maintaining and establishing uh, buffers while living on the landscape. And it's a long convoluted effort, but it's, it's really pretty cool because there's been a lot of success. So I got a question for you, because this this made me think of something else. I was uh, doing a little road trip uh, this last summer and found this excellent camping spot right along this, this beautiful river. I don't even know how to describe it, but it wasn't super deep, but the, you know, it was probably 15, 20 feet wide, good flow, uh, pretty rocky, pebbly, um, uh, not sediment type, but, um, formation on the, on the bed of the channel. And somebody at some point had gone through and stacked rocks across the river to create I don't know if it was a little dam or or something probably to cause that water to flow up. And an individual I was with who happened to also be um, an environmental science-based person um, had mentioned that these artificial rock dams were causing problems for, I think it was 
Brook Trout. Bull Trout. Now I'm Bull Trout. Bull Trout. Okay. So sorry for all the the Fisher <laughs> people out there that are cringing as I talk about this. I'm certainly not um, uh, well versed in this field, but when I when he said that and it started making me think, I mean, it, like you've said today, I mean we're going to put trees in the river. We have a long history of beavers that have gone around and dammed up streams. What what's causing that problem, and and how did these historical natural phenomenons that would have dammed up streams been different? <laughs> oh boy. Gotta chew, gotta chew, gotta chew, chew, chew. I gotta chew, gotta chew, gotta chew, chew, chew. Cause I'm a beaver and I'm the best damn builder in the world. Is that what you meant? <laughs> That's close. <laughs> You're not getting out of it. No, so so be- beavers are a really interesting case. And um, yes, they build dams. Uh, it turns out that two things about beaver dams. One is they're relatively permeable to small organisms because you think about how they're constructed. It's sticks and it's mud and the water's flowing through them somewhere. And so little, little fish, it turns out, are able to get up and down pretty well. And most beaver dams are somewhere in the range of like two feet high. You do run into these ones that are six feet high sometimes. But something else about beaver dams is they're usually temporary on the landscape. They'll blow out after a few decades. They come back. The beavers will build them back. And so when the water was high, some of the salmon could actually jump over them. And it would depend on the flow. So in the fall flows, uh, like when a lot of the fish would come in to spawn, like right now, like the chum, for example, on the coast, they can actually get over and around these dams. And so the salmon recovery people for the longest time were anti-beaver because the assumption was that they dammed the streams and blocked fish from upstream passage, which was probably true sometimes. But the overall effect was positive for two reasons. One is, in particular, beavers raised the water table. Um, So, you know, so you think about, so a, a water table is... I like the analogy of it's that bubble on the coffee pot. And so where is the water level? Well, what you can see on the surface, you could cast that out, and this is totally crude, but that's where the soil water is, is roughly at that same height going out from there. And what does a beaver dam do? It raises the water table. It essentially puts more water in the system to trickle out later. And so they do this pretty remarkable watershed storage function. Um, Historically, too, they created a lot of that complexity. So like beaver ponds are famous for being places where coho would rear. So the little coho would be in these beaver ponds and the adults might have spawned downstream of the pond if they couldn't quite get up it or they were able to jump it when the conditions were right. And so the salmon recovery groups have really come around to like, you know what? Beavers are actually a positive presence on the landscape. Now, beavers are a nuisance to people if they're chewing down your trees, the ones you want, or they're clogging up your culverts, you know, where you wanted a road and things. And so we're, we're actively trying to figure out how to live with beavers on the landscape too. Um, and so beaversnorthwest.org 
check them out. They've got a pretty nice website. Uh, there's a couple of relocation efforts around the state. And uh, I'm going to give a plug for a book called Eager, E-A-G-E-R, by Ben Goldfarb, which is all about beavers and living with them. It's, it's an excellent read. I highly recommend Eager. So, beaver, so beaver, I guess yeah. I'm just... Well, I guess I'm just curious that it doesn't seem like anything you just said is vastly different than an artificial rock dam that's, you know, just a couple inches high. How how are these rock dams actually being detrimental to the stream? Yeah, so the rock dams in particular ecologically probably frankly aren't a big deal but the uh the and, and I, I know this from a little bit of exposure to bull trout biology. I got a bull trout song too by the way. You want to hear that one later. That's a joke. Um that uh, bull trout spawn in the fall. And so the bull trout are, are there, let's see, October, they're done spawning now, or they're spawning, the late ones are right now when the streams are at their lowest. And bull trout have this really interesting life history that they spawn the highest in the watersheds. They spawn in clean, cold water, all the, and then they'll drop down. I heard him described as the bull trout, of, I'm excuse me, the wolves of the river system, because they'll go, like they had bull trout that they marked in the upper Metal that went all the way down into the big Columbia, even went down below one of the dams and came back and moved like 60, 70, 80, 150 miles in their, you know, annual movement. So they're pretty good sized fish. I mean, like they're somewhere between 14 and 24 inches long when they're going upstream. And apparently they don't jump very well. And so those, those, uh, man-made little dams like that that people make for a swimming hole usually in the summertime can impede upstream migration of bull trout and so it's been a small-scale conservation effort for uh, watersheds where bull trout still exist to break those down at the end of the summer so that way i think that's probably what your friend was responding to yeah which is kind of an easy one, frankly. It's kind of like keeping your cats inside for birds. Ken, I'm kind of curious. I, I had heard something, and I, you know, I hadn't fact checked it, so I didn't do my my science job. But um, about how we we've stressed a lot the the desire for like long lived conifer wood in in waterways to serve those log jam uh, purposes that you've talked about. But then I, I had also heard. Uh, from a, a scientist friend of mine who, who said that there's actually a lack of diversity in the wood itself and that we've kind of moved away from oh. things like on the west side, like red alder in the uh, in the streams, which decay much quicker, but they have a different nutrient profile in the wood. They appear much higher in nitrogen and things like that. And, they, and so is there anything to that, I wonder, of like taking that same diversity approach in our in our buffers of you know trying to encourage some of the a lot of times we move away from these long-lived conifers because we want the shade and all of that and i and i'm not doubting any of that but i wonder if we should be keeping some element of that diversity that we probably would have seen you know pre-settlement i i will i i'm not even qualified to comment on that other than it's a wondrous uh, response to our efforts at restoring these systems that we would be down in the weeds wondering about what the composition of our restoration <laughs> efforts would be optimal. That's wonderful. That Well, that means that restoration has become socially accepted. You know, so our social license has expanded, meaning no, nobody any longer is going like, 
You guys are crazy putting logs back in the stream. It's an it's analogous to snags. I can go to an audience and I've done this before. I say, how many of you know that a snag is a good habitat feature? Just about everybody will go, okay. And if not, then hopefully by the time I'm done, you'll think it is. But we've made a lot of progress in regard to awareness of habitat diversity. Now, the next step is action. You know, so case in point, we go out with the landowner on the west side and there's a root rot pocket. And the, and the landowner says, like, what can I do about this? And the silvicultural treatment, you know, you'd cut it out and you'd replant with different species. What do I do with these dead trees? I will say, well, resist the urge to cut the big ones for firewood. We want those to be the cavity trees. The smaller ones, you know, you, you, can, you can remove some wood and still have a functioning system, but do it from the, from the small end, you know, thin from below for your firewood. Um, so there you go. I got to put in a plug for leave the big dead trees. So I think it's a similar, it's a similar thing. So, okay. I'm going to do a hard transition here because we are actually at an hour oh, and wow. a half into this recording. Oh, good luck with um, the editing, Sean. Oh, uh, yeah. It's going to be fun. Um, let me, let me, let me finish with a little piece of the beaver song at the very end. If we can do that. Yeah. Um, so I just want to wrap up with one last topic and, you know, so most of our land or our audience here is going to be land landowners, private landowners, small forest landowners, and many of them, you know, they own five to 40 acres. What is the what is the role of landowners in managing their land as it fits within the the broader landscape context? How do they manage not just a healthy their healthy property, but how do they you know contribute to a healthy landscape? That's a, thank you. That's a great one. So in the state of Washington, we have about two hundred and nineteen thousand families and individuals that own those lands that you just described, mostly between five and 40 acres ish. Um, and they own, you guys tell me if I get this number right. It's about 3.2 million acres, something like that. Sounds right. I think that's the latest number. Sounds about right. I haven't done the the recent check. Which is a lot. And so in Washington, there's about uh, 20, 21 million acres of forest and about more than half of that is owned by the, the federal government in the form of parks and national forest. So the 10, I say 10 million left. Of that 10 million, uh, half of that is owned by the state and tribes roughly. And then of the other piece, it's uh, Weyerhaeuser and the industrials and then the small forest landowners. So the point of that whole thing is if you lay the map out, and it's one reason I always put that map in my presentation, it's a it's a it's a, a a a crazy quilt. It's a crazy quilt, and the small landowners will be these significant puzzle pieces in the landscape. And the wonderful thing about our small landowners is we can do anything. We can pretty much implement most anything, unless you have a fish bearing stream on your property. Uh, whatever you want to do, and so we have the chance to directly influence the outcomes on those properties. We, we often say we want to keep forest as forest. And I'd like to think we want to keep forest habitats as habitats, as rich habitats. And so the scale of it and the placement. So I would suggest that the small landowners, uh, because of the uh, way that these parcels are embedded in the ownership pattern, have a far bigger influence than just the acreage suggests. And people are on the land doing the right thing. 
which I think is one of the most wonderful elements of this is that, I mean, in most of these properties and, you know, hey, this would be a good metric to tease out is what proportion of our ownerships have a home on them. We probably know that. It's pro- I bet it's more than half. And so people live on the property. They can see what's going on. They're significant pieces of the landscape. And um, I suspect that as the future proceeds, and we've already seen a bunch of this, the industrial landowners divest wherever they can sell. And many of our clients have come from previous industrial ownerships. And so as they break up or as the old family you know, 5,000 acres goes into 100 acre pieces, suddenly we've got, you know, multiple clients. So I think the trend of small ownership is going to continue upward in terms of numbers. And the significance will also go upward because we'll have a bigger proportion of landscape and more people to work with. Yeah, I think that's like a a big part of our, our I don't want to call it a dilemma. I call it an opportunity uh, between DNR and extension forestry is that we do know that the number of small forest owners is growing, but we're not getting more land. Uh, you know, it's the same amount of land being subdivided into smaller parcels, which means we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of landowners all with their own management objectives uh, to work with and ranges of experience, uh, things that are important to them, their values. It's, uh, it's, it's a difficult task, but I think it's like you, I think uh, they're disproportionately important to, to the landscape and what they can offer. And it's a really, really big opportunity to get people engaged with management and then, and, you know, contribute to the health across the landscape. That's well said. Well, the, hence House Bill 1168, acknowledging that, actually placing some funding towards building out the service forestry program to bring us up to uh, something closer to the demand that we're, we're certain mm-hmm. is out there. And, you know, for the listeners here, if you haven't worked with WSU Extension Forestry or the DNR program, reach out to us. Um, we've got a whole cadre of people who are, who are here. That's what we're here for, you know, and, and frankly, we're free uh, to work with, unless you're paying for the coach planning class. But we use the forest stewardship plans as the lever uh, to get people in the door because you get the tax break sometimes in your counties. And now I know you're going to hear more about this, but that's what we do. And so we collectively, and I say we, that's the stewardship family, community, team, whatever you want to call us, um, are here to help you figure out uh, what the best way to manage your land is long-term. And forest, I've made the comment that forestry is fundamental problem. You know what it is, Patrick? So that we should have been planting trees yesterday. More or less. It takes too long. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so one, one, one lifetime is one tree right. that's really fully grown out. And we all come into our forest somewhere, you know, in the course of that particular stand. And part of our job is to help people see where they are and where they want it to go. Right. Yeah. And relative to habitat, too. So that's where my habitat complexity pitch is always rolled in there as part of forest health. So a healthy forest has a complex habitat that has uh, shrubs and dead trees and big trees and down logs and all of those things relative to the niches of these wondrous animals we have. I, I'm always blown away by how little I have to um, argue the case for managing something that 
they may managing for something that they may never see. Uh, and I find it really inspiring that a lot of landowners, they don't need to be, you know, they don't need me to make the case that they want to manage for a healthy forest 60 years from now. Um, so, I mean, I, and I, I love that. I love that. I don't have to argue for that. It's great. I love it when you go out to, and there'll be the landowner with their kid. Mm-hmm. And then every now and then you'll have the privilege of the older landowner with their son and or daughter, uh, and then their kid. And they'll bring along the, the grandkids just, and the kids are just walking around in the woods, bopping around. It's like, Joey, pay attention here, pal. <laughs> if everything plays out right, this is your forest. Yeah. And so that's kind of what we're, we're really looking for a legacy awareness with our landowners and not necessarily a family lineage, just however we get there so that, um, yeah, the forest is healthy and rich and uh, we, the pileated woodpeckers persist into the future. <laughs> and we don't, you know, we don't have another age of extermination. We have an age of restoration and uh, lollipops and love for all the birds <laughs> and deer and everything. Yeah. All right, Ken, do you want to wrap us up with uh, one of your infamous songs <laughs> on, on your infamous guitar? Sure. Let's see if this will work. Okay, so we'll, we'll finish the beaver here. So this is called uh, Gotta Chew. Gotta chew, gotta chew, gotta chew, chew, chew. Gotta chew, gotta chew, gotta chew, chew, chew. Cause I'm a beaver. Lord, I just gotta chew. Well, give me some willow, some cottonwood, a little bit of aspen, yeah, that would be good. Throw in some mud, and Lord, I built you a dam. Slap, slap. Well, I'm a big old beaver. Oh man, am I able? I'll raise your water table. I'll make a home for the ducks and the toads. I'll clog up your culverts and flood all your roads. I gotta chew, gotta chew, gotta chew, chew, chew. Gotta chew, gotta chew, gotta chew, chew, chew. I gotta chew, gotta chew, gotta chew, chew, chew. Cause I'm a beaver and I'm the best damn builder in the world. Oh, give me some willow, some cottonwood, a little bit of cedar, yeah, oh, that would be good. Throw in some mud, Lord, I built you a dam. Slap, slap. Slap, slap.